0: Hello and welcome, I'm Alex Bidwell and this is Black and Blue, a look at how the Cincinnati Collaborative Agreement addressed police-community relations and social trust with the African American community. When one hears the topic of police reform, they typically think of a Department of Justice investigation that produces a consent decree, typically stemming from racial bias and discrimination. We have seen these in cities such as Portland, Oregon, Cleveland, Baltimore, and most notably, Ferguson, Missouri. What I'm here to present is a discussion about an alternative process that was used in Cincinnati, Ohio, one that brought together various stakeholder groups amid tense times to discuss what reform should look like in their city, and examine its effectiveness in regards to addressing, and hopefully improving, police-community relations and social trust between police and the African-American community. To gain more intimate insight into this process and how it addressed police-community relations, as well as social trust, I traveled to Cincinnati to speak to individuals that were involved on the ground level. I wanted to know what police-community relations and social trust looked like now in 2017 compared to the period of 1995 to 2001, as well as after the signing of the collaborative agreement for the term that it was a legally binding document with court supervision and a monitoring team. To learn more and get a better understanding of police-community relations and the level of trust between the African-American community and the Cincinnati Police Department, I visited with a local pastor and community leader who was a key player in the collaborative agreement. Damon Lynch uh, III. I'm a pastor in Cincinnati,
1: Ohio of the New Prospect Baptist Church. I'm born and raised in Cincinnati. I was the former president of the Cincinnati Black United Front, which was the group
0: that filed the class-action lawsuit in the city of Cincinnati. Being a lifelong Cincinnati resident and an active member of the community, specifically the African-American community, and as a pastor and former president of the Cincinnati Black United Front, Pastor Lynch was able to offer a unique perspective when I asked him about what police-community relations and trust meant to him.
1: Well, I think for for the African-American community, if I could speak that broadly, there have never been good police-community relations. For me, the idea of policing black people goes back to the, to the slave catcher. That was the person who, you know, you're trying to get free and you leave the plantation. There's this person who, you know, has been deputized or authorized to come and take you back. And because racial profiling, and that racial profiling is when skin color becomes evidence of the proclivity to commit crime. And so going back to the slave catcher, I mean, so even if I'm a free black man and I'm walking down the street, well, my skin color is evidence of a proclivity to commit crime. So I have to say, hey, show me your papers. I'm like, well, why? Because you're black and you could be one of those runaway slaves. So my skin color alone is enough to say, stop, show me your papers. And, and that was the genesis of this. You know, you're, you're black. I mean, I don't care if you're a free slave from Virginia or, and you're now here and wherever, you still look like those other cats. And so the only way I can know is, show me your papers. And so the average white person would say, well, just show them your papers, which is what they say now. Well, why didn't Rodney King just lay down? Or why did he run? And the only people who don't have to show papers in America is white people. I mean, you're white. It's like, hey, you're, you're free. You're cool. You can be the biggest terrorist, the biggest asshole, whatever, but you're white. Nobody's going to stop you and say, prove to me that you're not an illegal alien. You're not a dope dealer. In Dr. King's speech, the I Have a Dream speech, most people have never read the part where he says, there are those who are asking the devotees of civil rights, when will you be satisfied? He says, we can never be satisfied as long as the Negro is the victim of unspeakable horrors of police brutality. That's like, what,
0: 1963? No, here we are in Exactly. Ferguson, Cincinnati, Baltimore. This was a very interesting perspective on this topic. One that, admittedly, I had not considered before. I also wanted to get a better understanding of the state of police community relations and the level of trust from the community perspective now, in 2017, Compared to the period of nineteen ninety five to two thousand one, a period when fifteen African American men were killed by the Cincinnati Police Department, now in two thousand seventeen, what would you say police-community relations in Cincinnati look like?
1: A lot better. A lot specifically between. Yeah, a lot better than they were in the early two thousands and the late nineties. A lot better than they probably were in the sixties. And that's, that, that's because of the work we did through the collaborative agreement. That's because of the, the continued pressure and the demand for good policing. Uh, they're in no, no way perfect.
0: In addition to the community perspective, I was also interested to find out about the state of police community relations and the level of trust through the lens of law enforcement.
2: My name's Steve Saunders. I'm a lieutenant with the Cincinnati Police Department. Um, I've been with the Cincinnati Police Department for 26 years. Now I'm currently assigned as the public information officer and basically interact with the media. and I also oversee our community relations unit. So we have some officers that are in very specific roles, an LGBTQ liaison, a homeless a liaison, so kind of niche roles that fall in our community relations. I've come up through the ranks and done everything from beat officer to neighborhood officer, neighborhood sergeant, internal investigations, I was on our SWAT team for about seven years, and I've been a mountain bike officer. i had a very fortunate career. Since you've been here for, for so many years, you were able to see what it was like before
0: you had the collaborative agreement, what it, during and then after. Right. So I guess in terms of currently, how would you sort of describe or categorize like police-community relations and the level of trust between the Cincinnati Police Department and
2: the African-American community? It's a work in progress. So, trust is something that is earned, and you earn that through you know, real concerted effort and making and building relationships uh, in the community. So, each one of our police districts has a neighborhood unit uh, with, with a neighborhood sergeant. Neighborhood officers are assigned directly to our neighborhoods. Now, one officer might have one or two, or maybe even three neighborhoods, depending on the situation in that particular district. But we do a lot to reach out to community members. We attend all of the community meetings that are happening within the city. So we're having that personal direct contact. The people who work in my group in the community relations unit also attend meetings with the faith-based community, the LGBTQ community, so a variety of things. We're making a concerted effort to connect with the community, not just the African-American community, but the Cincinnati community as a whole, because there's so many different groups and organizations, stakeholders, if you want to call them that, throughout the city. And it's important for us to develop, develop those relationships and build trust across the board. Specifically with the African-American community, you know, we do everything possible to connect. And that's, again, going to meetings, interacting with people. I have a, a coffee next Monday with somebody who's very uh, active in the Avondale area, which is a mostly African-American uh, community. Part of that opportunity is to sit down and just one-on-one see what's going on in that community those little informal things you do help build trust and in order for us to have legitimacy and the authority that goes along with the badge and what we're sworn to uphold we have to build trust and that comes through just again building relationships being transparent on what we're doing as a police department including community input in problem solving and i think that's the biggest shift i've seen in my career is going from a enforcement 911, responding to calls for service, to taking a deeper look at how we uh, work with the community. And a problem solve. so it's not just our solution as a police department, we have to find many solutions.
0: I also posed this question of current police community relations and level of trust in Cincinnati to Colonel Dave Bailey.
3: I'm what you call the executive assistant chief with the department. That position now basically runs the day-to-day business side of the department. I spend most of my time doing the politics, the paperwork, the policies. Been here 30 years, been to every police district, pretty much worked in every place
0: throughout the department, as you can imagine. Currently, today, in 2017, how would you describe police-community relations and the level of social trust between the Cincinnati Police Department, specifically the Mm -hmm. African-American community? I would like to believe, generally, we're very well off here.
3: I would like to believe that in virtually all our communities, in the African American communities, we have a tremendous amount of support. That's been my experience. I think what you're seeing globally, I I think you're seeing a a subset of folks that have issues with police legitimacy, but I just haven't seen widespread distrust. I haven't seen that here. I think this collaborative has done a lot to help us get to where we're at. Is it perfect? No, you know that. Is it much better than it was 15 years ago? Hell yeah. I mean, it mm-hmm. is. I'll tell you, right now it is. I, I mean, it, it, I mean, we were going in neighborhoods before getting rocked and bottled by the larger community. Now we don't have that. Now we got basically, when we sit down, we can go anywhere, talk to folks, and, and, and at least have some understanding.
0: Having gained a deeper insight into current police community relations and the level of trust between the Cincinnati Police Department and the African-American community, I was curious what people considered to be the major flashpoint that brought about the need for reform in Cincinnati. The
1: major flashpoint... It was probably the 1995 killing of Lorenzo Collins. Lorenzo Collins was a mental patient at university hospital, and he got away and was surrounded by, like, 13 cops or more. And he was holding a brick, and they opened fire, and they just killed him. The community marched and protested, but I don't think we ever got over that. Of course, no cop was charged, and then others started dying and gunned down. It got all the way up to November of 2000, when Roger Owensby and Jeffrey Irons were both killed by cops within 24 hours. At that time, the Black United Front existed because we were formed in July of 2000, when thirteen downtown restaurants closed their doors and wouldn't and wouldn't serve African Americans. This is it, in two thousand two thousand, like nineteen fifty, two thousand. And the jazz festival was in town and it's like thirty thousand African Americans <coughs> in downtown and restaurants closed their doors. So we formed around that. So we we were then an entity and that's July of two thousand. They're killed in November of two thousand. So the Black United Front, since we were like the most vocal radical group at the time, we connected with the ACLU and filed a class action lawsuit. So that's in March. We're in federal court, but we've got them. We're out thinking in every step of the way. April 2001, Timothy Thomas is gunned down and over the Rhine. He becomes number 15. That is another flashpoint. What happened, three things. It was spring break, so kids were out of school. It was unseasonably hot. And it happened in Over the Rhine, which is this tight little area where everybody hangs. You know, if it happened here, probably no riot in Roseline. It happened in OTR. Explosion. You know, it's like, this is it. The pot's been boiling. So, I think that may have happened on a weekend, Friday night. Monday, there was a meeting at City Hall. No answers given on why this young man died, his mother's there, I'm there, our attorneys are there, and we just took over City Hall. It ended with, you know, cops ring City Hall with dogs and all that, and we demanded that that be gone. I finally went home. I went home, I got a phone call and said they're burning it down, and marched into OTR and started burning it down. So I came back, I opened the church, which was an over-the-rhine, and we stayed there for three straight nights. Uh, three, three straight days,
0: actually. It was that the, the beginning of day, the three days of unrest, or riots, yeah, or how That it was the Three days classified. of
1: riots, civil unrest, uh, rebellion. That's usually what people call it. Three terms, all interchangeable. Well, still with the, the main theme of demanding... Yeah, justice. And that... Help spur the collaborative agreement because you gotta remember Owensby, Irons you know nobody's really paying as much attention class action lawsuit but the civil unrest the city woke up. The business community said what do we have to do? It's a little bit harder to ignore that. Exactly. Business community said we got to do something. And reality is when there's civil unrest in Over the Rhine there's dis-ease in Indian Hill, which is our most affluent area. Because Over the Rhine houses Music Hall. The symphony is not Over the Rhine. The ballet is not Over the Rhine. So when I come from Indian Hill to enjoy the symphony, guess what? I have to come to OTR. But if OTR is on fire, hey, we're not coming.
0: Establishing more of a background foundation as to what led to the need for reform in Cincinnati. I also wanted to look closer at the process itself, so I spoke with Jay Rothman, one of the principal negotiators of the collaborative agreement, now a professor of conflict resolution at Bar Ilan University in Israel. My
4: charge was to try to convince the parties that we should do a process of problem solving, and I brought them together to suggest a particular style of mediation that I pioneered called ARIA, where you bring up antagonism, you search for residents, you and intentions and then you implement action. And as we were exploring this, the uh, police department said, if this is about mediation and conflict resolution, we don't want it, because we know who's going to be blamed, and we didn't do it, and we'd rather go to court.
0: As a result of this impasse, Professor Rothman said the process almost stopped before it even started.
4: And I saw this, uh, this unique opportunity of being a special master in the midst of a very deep identity conflict falling away before my eyes. And so I said to them before they left, if we turn the coin over of conflict, on the other side you have goals. In many ways, conflicts are when goals are threatened or frustrated. So let's turn the coin over and look at goals. So if you don't want to address the conflicts, how would if we look for a future in which police and community are working better together? Would that be of interest? And the chief sat down and he said, of course, that's what our job is. Now the, the head of the back to front said to me, you know, we've done this sort of stuff before sit around and we sing kumbaya, so nothing happens. What's different about it this time? And I said, different about it this time is that a federal judge sits on my shoulder. And if you guys can reach true goals for a different future, which you all are responsible for establishing both the agenda and helping to implement it, she'll make sure it happens. So off we went. And now we're using a process of mine called action evaluation, which is designed to help very different groups pull in the same direction instead of pull in opposite directions of improving the condition For the next several weeks we left alone. Nobody was really energized. They were all sort of a defensive mode, to make sure the other side doesn't get the better of them. Didn't get much traction. And then all of a sudden the riots happened.
0: The riots that Professor Rothman mentions were the three days of rebellion that took place in the wake of the killing of Timothy Thomas.
4: The riots happened six weeks after we started our process and the day after the riots, everybody was looking around for both an answer to why that happened and perhaps more so what to do about the dynamic that was engulfing the city. So we said here we are, we're ready. We know what we need to do. And so we became the darlings of the media about a process that could heal wounds and build a change. And over the next half a year we elicited thirty five hundred respondents to help us help them envision and imagine a different future. Broke down into eight different identity groups have met together separately to reach their own separate platforms about their visions for, for the future. And then six months later after we did all of this processing of dialogue and analysis, we came up with a five point agenda plan and a fifty page analysis document that we turned over to the court and the court
0: then developed a process of acceptance and translation really into a formal legal document. The five points that Professor Rothman references became the five common goals that made it into the collaborative agreement, and they were police officers and community members will become proactive partners in community problem solving, build relationships of respect, cooperation, and trust within and between police and communities, improve education, oversight, monitoring, hiring practices, and accountability of Cincinnati Police Department, ensure fair, equitable, and courteous treatment for all, and create methods to establish the public's understanding of police policies and procedures, and recognition of exceptional service, in an effort to foster support for the police.
5: We actually went back after we got those five goals negotiated, and did public hearings, you know, with the community, and said, "Do you recognize your ideas? Are we on the right page?" You know, especially at the Catholic Church, some of these big groups. We wanted them to to recognize that we we heard them and this is, the, this is what they asked for, so that we would have buy-in, and that was very
0: important. That's Al Gerhardstein, lead attorney for the plaintiffs in the class-action lawsuit that later led to the collaborative agreement.
5: I had been litigating against Cincinnati police for 20 years prior to that. That case consolidated all of the pending cases in front of the federal court, and the federal judge was very uh, instrumental in wanting to see a comprehensive resolution. I had been retained by the Black United Front in the fall of 2000, after the what we always talked about as the two in 24, when Owensby was killed and then within another 24 hours, Jeffrey Irons was killed by the police. The Black United Front wanted to see major litigation done to end racial profiling and excessive force. So we collected lots of statements from witnesses, people who had had bad experiences with the police. We sifted through all that, came up with 40 reliable current statements, filed a class action in March of 2001, and at that time offered the city the choice between traditional litigation, and I was prepared to go to a preliminary injunction hearing with expert witnesses to get an injunction against practices that we felt were unfair to the black community or collaboration and that's where we already knew about this strategy of engaging the, the entire community in dialogue and sort of map that out in our initial proposal and put it on the city and the court to decide which path they wanted to go.
0: So I guess kind of looking at it in the big picture What would you say was the main goal the Collaborative sought to achieve?
5: The main goal, from my client's point of view, was to end police strategies that oppressed black people and preserve the public safety, because that's what everybody wants. They want a safe community. And reduce arrests that lead to mass incarceration. So we were against sweeps, Stop and frisk quotas, and we wanted to encourage strategies that promoted peace while being
0: fair. So, looking at it from that side, would you say you were also considering how an approach like this could look at the idea of police community relations and then also social trust?
5: Well, sure. I mean, you don't do any of that without building more positive relationships uh, which have to be based on trust.
0: Given Professor Rothman's role in this process, as well as his expertise, I wanted to know how this method of engaging stakeholder groups could function as a conflict management strategy, as well as what the inspiration was for these groups and how they were decided. So I guess then kind of getting into the specific process, what would you say the process of engaging and involving stakeholder groups in negotiations for the collaborative look like kind of as a conflict management strategy?
4: The first thing is that it was a future-oriented strategy. I invited them first to do a backwards looking one of the conflicts here, or one of the sources of those conflicts, and they refused. I think that was problematic, actually, and it, and it did haunt us that particularly African-American communities felt like issues of racism were swept under the carpet, and they said, I think correctly, we don't think about the past and the advice, the way that it contributes to the present. So I don't think they were wrong. On the other hand, by having a very narrow charge to be positive and aspirational, we had a way to galvanize us. I call this systematic collaborative visioning, where we're able to get individuals to say, this is what I want, this is really important to me, this is how I think it should happen. For example, a youth saying, what I want is a future in which I feel like the police respect. It is important to me because I've had experiences where they didn't. And here's some suggestions for how that might happen. Police might say, I uh, desire a future in which the community is really a part of me in helping to to deal with crime and disorder issues. Why? Because this is why I went into policing, because I wanted to be a community servant. And then we bring them back in the context of their own identity group, and they reach an agreement about the platform of three to five goals. And then after each of the eight groups finishes this, this internal dialogue, what we call intra-group dialogue, we then have representatives of all of the different groups meeting to reach agreement on an overarching platform of goals. That's where they came up with five goals, which were supported by narratives, why and manners literally thousands of action ideals that, that could have been
0: implemented had the process not been set aside. Speaking yeah. specifically to the the stakeholder groups, how were those kind of derived and then decided for moving an interesting forward? Interesting question, Alex. Right. One of the
4: things that, that we did out of that first meeting when we decided to go ahead with the contractor process before the rights happened, is we built this steering committee made up of representatives of those who would have been the, the parties to the lawsuit very interesting these who would be gladiators against each other to being on the same side and trying to figure out how to solve problems. I can't say it was easy because they were used to fighting each other. I can't say it was altogether successful, but this one piece was very successful and it's figuring out how to organize the city. And what they did is they looked at past studies, both demographic studies and studies about efforts to, to build collaboration in the past. And that's how we came up with the working groups to divide the city youth, Americans, interestingly white citizens, and we had business leaders, we had religious leaders, we had city city officials, and so forth, so we had eight different groups, and that was a way to organize dialogue, organize agreement, so you had a
0: kind of a representational process, deeply participatory nature, but also representing each group its own constituents. Would you say that some of those groups were reluctant to participate? say, specifically the the African-American community based on past history?
4: No, I, uh, because Damon Lynch was so active in recruiting, and the participation of the African-American community was very fulsome and very eager. The one group that was most reluctant, frankly, was the police. And, and we had a tremendous amount of effort to help them feel secure with this process. To help them feel like this was with them and not against them. There was resistance from the chief, who later became from... But perhaps my major adversary became one
0: of my main allies really began to believe in, in, in advocating for this process. After examining some of the background, inspiration, and implementation for this process in order to address reform in Cincinnati, as well as hearing from Professor Rothman that there was reluctance on the part of the police to be involved, I wanted to know how the police department viewed this, specifically how new policies, procedures, and a general shift in the department culture were carried out.
3: Yes, but- nearly three years working on implementation of the collaborative agreement. This was back when it was first signed 2002 to 2005. So having that
0: experience, how did you kind of make sure that the new policies and procedures were sort of adhered to, and, you know, not just, not only the officers themselves, but the whole department sort of used the term buy into it? And kind of well, and that's,
3: that's what you typically see when you get, and we'll talk about the MOA side of it, you know, the memorandum of agreement speaks to changing police protocols and changing culture of the organization. I will tell you that at first there really wasn't buy-in. There wasn't buy-in at this level. I think the first year or so we were still fighting over it with the monitors and Department of Justice and it really slowed progress down. So when you talk about these agreements and you talk about entering into them, it's very important that city government as a whole, especially the Police Department, top brass, actually buys into it and supports it It conveys that right down the line. Finally, I think people got into our room and said, you know, what we've been doing hasn't worked. Look at the community. We got communities that aren't getting along with us. We're doing really nothing productive with the communities. I think we need to try something else. There was that realization that happened. And then we did start getting the policies changed. We went out and started talking to folks in the department and we started getting that buy-in. And I think what's important to note with Cincinnati, the police union was a party to the agreement. You don't see that very often. You see that here. So really, it wasn't hard for the police administration to get the buy-in because the union was doing that work for us. That's a big difference than what you see in other, other
0: jurisdictions. Having said that, how would you kind of uh, describe how the department everything is sort of, where the overall culture and dynamic has changed in the department over the years since the collaborative was?
3: Prior to the collaborative, just like major cities across the country, law enforcement was built mainly around aggressive enforcement models. So the whole idea back at the time, you know, let's go back to the gangs and crack cocaine epidemic of the eighties. So predominantly everything back in the eighties was centered around it's simple. You run a police department, you lock everybody up, throw away the key that's that was the way it was thought this is the way you should handle policing. So what was happening was you basically you were indicting large neighborhoods as being involved in crime when that simply wasn't the case. I think what was happening and I think what you're seeing now that we saw back then, the police department in the communities Started growing apart. Police departments started going on this this path saying, we're doing our job. It's enforcement. We know what we're doing. You stay out of it. Communities were basically changing, saying that's not the expectation. We want something else. We, we don't want heavy-handed enforcement only. We need something else. I think when we went to San Diego major city chiefs this year, I think a lot of law enforcement professionals asked the question, what's going wrong? The people who are leading police departments now came up in that generation in the 80s it's not the expectation of your new, your new public, right? And I think what the collaborative did was bring that back to center, saying that, okay, look, look, police department, your predominant strategy should be problem-solving. We're not, we're not going to get rid of enforcement. We understand enforcement will be necessary. But primarily, your activities should center around working with your stakeholders and coming up with identifying what some problems are, longer-term solutions, educating folks, getting people to be a little bit self-sufficient in the neighborhoods. I think what CPD did and we still do. We invest a lot in our neighborhoods. We put a lot of people on our community meetings. We got a lot of community officers that do nothing but take care of community events and conversation. We become cheerleaders for neighborhoods. We become the dynamic figures when it comes to problem solving events. It's become part of the culture now with the police department. Instead of saying, okay, stand out of the way. I'll come in and lock up everybody's doing bad things. What's our problem? Let's define the problem. Let's use the process. Let's work through this. Let's get the folks we need to look at this thing through a different lens, if need be, and come up with a comprehensive solution. I think it's ingrained with the way we work now as opposed to back then.
0: Colonel Bailey makes reference to a memorandum of agreement. What's important to note is that there was also an investigation by the Department of Justice taking place as the collaborative was being negotiated. This was initiated by then Mayor Charlie Lucan in response to the killing of Mr. Timothy Thomas in the ensuing days of unrest. The negotiations for the collaborative had already been underway for several weeks at this point, and the memorandum of agreement later combined with the collaborative. What this also does is raise the question of the differences between the collaborative agreement and the results of a Department of Justice investigation, typically a consent decree.
6: In fact, the Justice Department got involved here because the mayor, trying to weasel out of the whole thing, said, oh, maybe I'll call the Justice Department and have them do an investigation. I'll be independent, and that'll sort of, like, take it off the heat. Actually, what it turn, he didn't understand what the Justice Department comes in does not leave, you know, in any short time. So that that compounded it. That's Dr. John Eck, a professor at the University of Cincinnati, teaching classes
0: on police effectiveness and crime prevention. He was asked to help with negotiations and using his expertise with problem-oriented policing, draft a working document that could act as a
6: starting point for negotiations. Though If he hadn't done that, it would have been just local, and it would still have been negotiated. That said, I don't know how much addition of the Justice Department put pressure on the city to come to some kind of conclusion. They were never at the table when we were at the table. They were always in the background. But that doesn't mean they weren't doing things. The judge would talk to them, and the other, other lawyers would talk to them. So I think the Justice Department had potentially a useful role, but I think its role was secondary. The cities that make it primary, I think, do so at at some risk, long term. In the short term, they might get something out of it. In the long term, I think. If they can't come to the table and sustain an effort, then you can't expect the Justice Department to do that for them.
0: How would you say that with the Justice Department coming in and doing their investigation and implementing a consent decree, what would you say are the main differences or outcomes of... That versus Well, first of all, the Justice
6: Department focuses on procedural stuff. Their lawyers, you know, do you have a policy on this? How is the policy written? How is force used? They don't focus on strategy. They do not understand that how you envision your police producing safety is important. They leave it completely alone. And, it, it, and most of them sort of make some feeble talk about it. But they, they don't understand. They're not trained to. They don't have the expertise to do it. And in some respects, it's like a really local decision to strategy, unless the strategy is really god awful to come up with that. So, and I think it's mostly just a legal framework that they, they come in with it. And that's an important framework to approach it, but it's, it's um, not the only way, and, it's, and it can't be done by itself.
0: In addition to Dr. X's comment about the Department of Justice not being at the table and only speaking to procedural issues, Mr. Gerhardtstein brought up the idea of the effectiveness and ability of consent decrees being able to reach an entire community. Would you say that an alternative process like this compared to a consent decree can be more useful when you're specifically looking at police-community relations and the idea of social trust? Well,
5: it certainly was for us because I think, uh, I mean, I'm a trial lawyer, and I'm the one who proposed, along with my colleagues, this whole collaborative dialogue. And I agreed that it was a good model to give a try to, because generally litigation is binary, and yet, so you have a plaintiff and a defendant, and you usually have the the black class of oppressed people versus the city, many of the business leaders had no problem with the police, didn't get it. What was our problem? And yet, many of the black community leaders had a tremendous problem with the police. So unless we brought in all of these stakeholders, our solution was not gonna reach the whole community. And consent decrees are binary. They don't even let the community at the table. Right. They might talk to a few <coughs> community people, but they don't really engage them
0: as players. I've been gaining this knowledge and was result some lingering questions about the collaborative community. I think one of the first things I wanted to know was other than the use of independent monitors, how was success or progress measured in a tangible way? Some of this was expressed by individuals that said relations and trust were, in fact, better, but that it is something that parties must always be working towards and is a continued and ongoing effort. In the bigger picture, Mr. Gerhardstein noted another way of measuring this in a more analytical way.
5: Our arrests are down by half since we started the collaborative and crime is down too. We're arresting fewer people, feeding the jails and prisons a lot less, and yet we still have a crime rate that's going down. That's really important and that's, that hopefully is reassuring to those who doubt
0: stuff. In addition to being able to measure success of the collaborative agreement, I was also curious what lessons or key takeaways could be learned from this process as well as if it would offer insight about this type of approach being used as a framework or model that other communities could look to that are needing to address similar issues that faced Cincinnati.
4: So first of all, I think what the judge did, which was set aside a lawsuit over plane, and said, how do we do this as a collaborative process from the bottom up? So so having a real bottom up process that's systematic, that's inclusive, that's fair, is essential. Also having a top-down sponsorship is, I'd say, equally essential. In this case, you know, when the parties were reverting, the federal judge would say to them, if you don't want to do this process, I'll just invite you back to my court. The third thing that, that I think is essential is that you have a good middle out of the institutional frameworks that would actually implement and maintain the changes once they were made. And that would be the police department, that would be the city
3: government. But the Claybrooder say, public, you're not off the hook. You've got some responsibilities here as well. You're part of this process. The police will do their part. You need to do their... We boil it down to one idea. That's all this really comes down to. There's five major pieces of the collaborative. A problem-solving piece to the collaborative, that's, that's the centerpiece of it, right? And then there's the racial profiling piece. And then there's a piece actually called mutual accountability, which says everybody here at the table has got to do their part, and we're going to measure that. So that's all the collaborative really is. One speaks to police practice. And then the rest of the collaborative speaks to how we're all going to interact to make things better. That's as simple as it gets. I know people grumbled at the time saying it was a lot of window dressing, but it's really had some powerful bite. It's really today, that's why the police chief and I really said we need to recommit to those five major tenants. That's a great insurance policy for any police department moving forward. Those five tenants are still as valid today as what they were back in 2002. Maybe the steps are outdated, and that's what we need to look at. Maybe some of the stuff we did back in 2002 are outdated. Adhere to these five goals and maybe change the way we get there. Understand that these things are a pretty good Bible to go by. Let's stick with it. And it worked. work. I mean, I think it's done well for us here. I think if we continue to embrace it, we move
0: forward. It was expressed to me during the course of my interviews that another important element of sustainability and overall success with this process was the strong community leadership that was on the ground in Cincinnati, as well as people remaining at the table after the supervision and monitoring concluded. So in addition to making it essential to making the process happen in the first place, would you say that that's also key in having this be something that's long term and sustainable? Well, that's, that's-
4: if I have a major lesson learned from my own work, it's one of the problems with, with the design was that I was in there for nine months, and then I left. And, and I really was, was facilitating the community input pretty peace. And when I left nine months later, and was replaced by an outside monitor. Really, the community input began to diminish. So while the community input definitely set the agenda and, and greatly impacted everything that happened in the court the involvement began to diminish the day that I left. And so pretty much every project since has been about building local capacity. So it's not about an outside group or methodology even coming in and guiding away, but rather building capacity for local organizations and institutions and local leaders to build on the methodology that we have fairly protected over these decades and adapt it and own it for local use so that there's no departure. You know, this this process really took a good able to keep the community engaged based on low burn, I believe progress and change and what you call social trust would have been able
0: to unfold at a much more fulsome and rapid rate. I was also interested how other communities and cities needing reform could implement a process such as this and ensure it was effective in bringing about long-term, sustainable solutions once there was no longer a legal obligation to adhere to it. So going back to the the three kind of bottom-up, middle-out, top down. would you say that that's what it would look like if you tried to put this to use in another another city or another community. Would those be like the key things? Exactly. I mean, we, we tried. We went to Seattle.
4: We went to Detroit, Michigan. And in each of those places, we did fine to a certain extent. A little bit of the middle alveance of institutional institutional from the police department. But in none of those places did we have authoritative commitment like we did in Cincinnati for the federal court. So that's what we need. Is this is going to work. Somebody that has real power to be able to say we were here from the community and we're going to help the input of the community truly really get things over the long term. So that was the unique experience we had in Cincinnati. And yes, I would say that these three components, one from another, need to be present, and it's going to really
0: be sustainable. So in your mind, then, why don't why aren't we seeing this process being used more in some cities instead of a consent decree?
4: None of them had the capacity to do the public input process that that our process enabled. I have not succeeded since either of having some agency from the top, like a federal judge, say to me, I'm empowering you to manage this process, and I will make sure that it maintains itself. So that's definitely been lacking. And why that's not unfolding, you know, I'd hate to say that this happened because there was a lineup of the stars, and it could never happen again. I think it could, but it requires uh,
0: in While well, the general consensus of the individuals I interviewed was that the collaborative agreement made a positive impact in regards to police community relations and social trust, Pastor Lynch offered a cautionary lesson, urging others to consider the potential impact on certain neighborhoods becoming gentrified. We got
1: out-thought, though, in some of this, because now it's like we, they pushed everybody out of OTR. They pushed out the social service people the homeless community, community, the drop-in center, they got rid of all of that so they could have it now to themselves. So if there was to be another moment of civil unrest, I doubt if it happens in OTR, because then we're all gone. So we gain the collaborative, they gain the community. I caution Baltimore, everywhere we've gone to share our story, they'll be careful to watch that. You know, everywhere that there's civil unrest and you know, we, we, we burn or we loot or we riot, because of this incident that took place because that can be the beginning of you gaining some police reforms but losing the land losing your community
0: in closing collaborative agreement is a groundbreaking venture that sought to create dialogue between groups that were far apart in the midst of a deeply embedded identity-based conflict and bring about meaningful change to bring the police and the community closer together instead of growing further apart It was expressed to me during these interviews that history is important, which includes the history of the treatment of African-Americans by the police. Bringing the groups to the table to open dialogue is a starting point to heal these wounds. As we heard, the Collaborative Agreement provided an avenue to address and improve social trust and police-community relations, but it's not something that can be achieved solely by one group and doesn't happen overnight. My hope with this story and accompanying essay is to bring more attention to a method that brought together police and community to implement wide-reaching reform initiatives. As we all know, there is undoubtedly tension between police and the communities they serve across the nation, but the hope is this type of approach can bring groups closer and work together to foster safe communities and fair treatment for all. As someone whose own personal views of the police have changed and evolved over the years, I think it's also important to consider that police have a dangerous job one is often thankless, making it all that much more important for the police and community to have strong relationships and trust with one another. I hope you enjoyed this story. Special thank you to those who shared their stories to contribute to this work. Lt. Steve Saunders and Colonel Dave Bailey of the Cincinnati Police Department, Pastor Damon Lynch III, Al Gerhardstein, Dr. John Eck, and Professor Jay Rothman. Original music by Photogramas online at com forward slash music. You can find more information by looking at the accompanying essay for this piece, which is linked in the description. I'm Alex Goodwell. Thanks for listening.